So Lisa, you know, uh, many times we work through the weekend, but some of the most interesting things seem to pop up on social media over the weekend. And my principal research assistant, Andrea, sent over a very interesting tweet from a team of engineering students at a large university where they created these, uh, I guess they're edible adhesives on burritos to make them less messy. And they're in the picture, you know, perceived to be white women and they just seem to be so proud of their invention. And yeah, I, I guess that cardinal rule of never look at the comments, I broke that rule completely and looked at the comments and they were not kind to oh, these dear. three students. Oh dear. Oh dear. So, okay, I'm curious about this because at first glance I'm thinking, okay, so the adhesive presumably will help make that meal less messy. That's not a bad thing, but I feel like mm. we're going we're gonna to discuss that it is in fact a bad thing, right? Uh, there you go. That's yep. it. That's yep. it. So, you know, I, I never thought I would come on this podcast and talk about uh, specific food, but yeah, let's talk about the burrito. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Feisty Triathlon is proudly partnered with TryHard. TryHard is the only company offering pre and post swim solutions to provide comprehensive protection for your hair and skin. Its products include swimmer shampoo, pre and post swim conditioner, pre and post swim lotion, and more. All products are made with clean formula and are parabens free, SLS free, alcohol free, cruelty free, vegan, and non-GMO. And to boot, bottles are made with 80% recycled plastic. So why don't you swim without compromising your skin and hair? Unfazed listeners get 15% off all TryHard products by going to tryhard.co and using the code FEISTY15. Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, Orca has fit-for-purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs. Innovation has always been part of Orca's DNA, and when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account. Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility, maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, Orca wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple. For 15% off all items on orca.com, use the code LIVEFEISTY15. So Lisa, let me tell you, I, I need to just stop breaking my own rules because <laughs> everyone tells me not to look at the comments, yep. not to look at anything in response. And I do it every single time. And that's how I get sucked into the vortex of whatever is going on. But I, uh, part of me is kind of glad that I looked at the comments, though, because there was a piece of culture that I was starting to pick up on that I didn't necessarily pick up on initially. And so I just thought it was interesting. So, you know, Lisa, I don't know about you, but I kind of 
avoid wearing white anything because I know that I'm yeah. going to spill yeah. something, drop something down the front. Um, I am, I feel as if I have a lot uh, up in the chest area. And so it's very easy to be in your own way uh, when it comes to everything and anything, right? And so I'm like, okay, so avoiding a mess. I'm down with that because I'm the first one to ruin something really nice uh, by spilling and so forth. But apparently some of the commentary was around literally obliterating a specific food culture in the Latinx community. And I just thought it was really interesting because I would have missed that. I think I would have missed that, but it makes really great sense. Yeah. I think that's the piece that I'm, I missed too initially is that there is a specificity to the burrito. It's not intended to be eaten with a knife and fork. It's not intended to be clean, right? Clean in the sense that you're not necessarily dropping stuff on your Mm -hmm. shelf. Um, And Mm -hmm. that's part of the experience of eating the burrito. Um, And, you know, as a white person, I think I definitely missed that because I have certainly been socialized that meal times should be clean and neat and you use your knife and fork and you do not eat eat with your mouth open and Uh um, you know you chew and you are very precise in in that process and so the idea Mm -hmm. of having something less messy was initially like oh yeah that's cool so what was the reason why these students did that what did what you know wasn't for the hell of it presumably Right, right, right. And so this is when, you know, here we go with uh, intent versus impact, right? So the intention was to help people to eat and enjoy a certain type of food. Um, And, you know, it was assumed that they were being helpful, that something that's usually very messy and, you know, drips on your blouse or your shirt or what have you. And, you know, it just is a very messy meal to be helpful to people who may find it really challenging to enjoy such a meal. And so for me, I I get it. I get it that you're trying to keep something from being messy. And on the other hand, I've been exposed to enough cultures outside of the burrito culture to understand that messiness isn't always a bad thing, right? So I'm thinking about, you know, communal cultures where people eat with their hands and eat out of uh, a, a family style meal with their hands, for example, or just, you know, some of the things that I thought about where, you know, I thought to myself, okay, who groomed us or pushed us into this bias where it's assumed that it's a no-no to be messy, right? Unless you're a child, unless you're yeah. a little person. Yeah. And even with them, it's we're, we're constantly wiping mouths and, you know, just doing all these things to perform as cleanly people as we're eating. And so to me, I started thinking, okay, <laughs> who told us that we had to be perfectly pristine while we're eating? You know, who told us that, you know, we need a fork and knife to do everything. And that simply is not necessarily part of burritos history or culture now from what i understand from mexican culture it was created as an easy way to carry around food while traveling but that may not be the culture that we're in right now you know every time i've eaten a burrito it's actually been a sit-down meal in a restaurant for example so i'm not traveling so the purposes that it was originally intended for may not hold now. So why are we still forcing people to subscribe to something that may just not be from that original culture? Eh, I think it's questionable. So 
was it specifically that these students were thinking about um, helping folks who might have some kind of physical disability that would prevent them from eating a burrito because mm. of or was it because they themselves found it annoying <laughs> to have messy food? Well, and see, this is where, and I can't answer your question because I, I would love to know how this team process worked for the students, because I guarantee, Lisa, if we put on our methodology hat, if you will, I guarantee that as they were doing some of this work, they may not have connected with, worked with, received advice from people who understand the history of burritos, right? And that part of me is really frustrated because you and I both know we see a lot of people do DEI work in a very similar way where their, their intentions are pure, but they're doing this work in the midst of a history that they don't know exists or understands. And then when it falls flat, they don't understand why. And so I'm sure they're looking at the comments, like we don't understand why people are, don't yeah. like our invention. Well, yeah. the very, even if it was, for example, designed for folks with disabilities, did you involve them in the, the, scientific method of the testing of the actual prototype and you know what was the involvement if any because we've seen lots of situations where you know whether it's retail or other things that went completely wrong because the people you intend to serve or maybe you unintentionally excluded them they're not being served mm-hmm. it, it just yeah I think there was a, a huge bit of exclusion there yeah, so it's kind of like thinking that you know better, right? So thinking that you have this great idea mm. to help people, um, but perhaps you haven't actually even asked the people that you think you're going to help whether they A, need the help, <laughs> B, want the yes. help, or yes. C, whether your help would actually be useful, right? Um mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think, I actually think that happens a lot with folks with disabilities and with other marginalized groups. I'm thinking back to the mm. straw fiasco um, uh, where there was a yeah. period of time, I forget when it was, two or three years ago, when companies started to remove straws from their, um, you know, like in a coffee shop or whatever, you couldn't get a straw, you had to ask for a straw. This must've been pre-pandemic. Yeah, um, yeah. Or they were, cha- they were, replacing plastic straws with paper straws or metal ones and there was this the the thrust the intention was that plastic straws are really bad for the environment and they clog up oceans and that is all true Uh, but for members of the disability community many need straws to be able to consume food and or liquids and paper straw is useless because it disintegrates and metal straws are not helpful for very cold beverages or really hot beverages so there wasn't this kind of like thought around this good climate oriented decision that kind of snowballed and went everywhere actually harms a community that Mm -hmm. um, is often excluded from a lot of food and beverage because of Mm -hmm. the way that it's you know designed around able-bodied people so it kind of makes me think of that in this scenario like do folks Mm -hmm. did did a person with disabilities or someone who has 
trouble eating burritos because they're messy actually say, hey, this is a problem that I would like a solution to. Right, right. If if not, um, because Mm -hmm. we don't know that, right? But if not, then how, to your point, were they actually including folks? And I see this a lot with white women, right? Like, Mm. here, give me, like, I have an idea. Let's do this, even though (laughs) it may not actually be useful. It's kind of that nice white triathlete but like throwing back mm. that very first episode we did it's like that right like I'm trying to be nice why are you mad at me this is a good thing the burrito's not messy anymore I don't understand it <laughs> right right exactly and you know once again civilizing a group of people that don't need civilizing because it seems to be separate and apart from your own experience and understanding of whether it's food culture, whether it's cleanliness, whether whatever it may be. I I think it's really interesting. Now, this is where we can directly apply this to the endurance sport community because there's so many things where it's kind of a twofold thing, the, the two sides of the same coin. On one hand, there are lots of things that are imposed on people that you really didn't consult with them on to see if that's a need. And then there's, a, on the other side, a group of people who have articulated needs quite clearly and they're not being responded to. So I just recently read, a, separate and apart from the burrito um, on social media, I just read yet again another article for a quote-unquote plus plus sized athlete. And I hate using plus size because plus in addition to what is always my question, um, a plus size athlete who is once again, asking for cycling kits that fit and not having to order, for example, a men's cycling kit. If you are more than a C cup, for example, as a woman, or, you know, all these different things where, you know, you have communities that are calling for a solution to a problem. And then to your point around these students, which we don't know, I would love to hear more about their method. Um, We have people similar to these students that are almost seeing a problem that doesn't exist in certain cultures and trying to solve for something that isn't there. Like what if the concept of messy just literally does not exist for the people that created the concept of burritos and all of their descendants and so forth. You've created a problem that's not a problem for them. And we see that happen all the time with civilization, the the notion or concept or process of civilization throughout history. You know, how many Europeans came here to what was then not even colonies yet, talking about there's a problem because folks aren't Christian enough around here. And here we go with yet another problem. It's like, we don't need Christianity. We have our own indigenous culture. Thank you very much. And our own indigenous religion and voodoo and all kinds of other aspects of their understanding of spirituality or non-spirituality. We don't need your stuff. And now you've come in here and Christianity has, you know, spearhead so many wars. It's ridiculous. So it, it just very much reminds me of either creating a problem that doesn't exist or not listening to people who genuinely have voiced a problem and you're not solving it. Yeah. Either one is dangerous and exclusive at the same time. Yeah. And I really think that we can trace this back to white supremacy. And again, you know, mm-hmm. we're not talking about the KKK. We're not talking about um, Unite the Right rally necessarily. We're talking about all the everyday ways that white norms permeate our society. Right. And so when we're talking about civilized, 
that's definitely a white and originally a white European perspective that anyone that didn't mimic or kind of acquire the same behaviors, attitudes, skills as white Europeans in the US were therefore uncivilized, right? And so I think this meal piece, um, it really taps into that, like you said earlier in this discussion. Um, and I also think the developing a solution for a problem that doesn't exist so that a person can be like praised for their good nature and their helping skills is also a very white approach to things, right? I know more. I'm going to assume this is a problem because I think it would be a problem for me. <laughs> Therefore, you must want this solution, right? Exactly. You must want this solution. Why wouldn't you want the solution? And we're like, nah, that ain't it. That, that's not it at all. And in fact, you have now created a problem for some people, if you will. You've disrespected certain groups' culture, for example. And, and we do this you know, oftentimes in other arenas and other industries. So, you know, with that, it's like, it's really interesting how white supremacy, it sounds like, creates problems that aren't there and solve them and ignore problems that are there. And I think part of it is, it's easy, right? So it's easier to create a problem that we then have to solve. And then we get to become the hero without consulting with the very communities they're supposed to serve, right? So that's one end of it. And then the other end is, oh, well, it's easy for me to ignore those that have said over and over and over again, they have a need because that absolves me from having to engage with them. Either way, I don't have to engage and I get to look from my ivory tower and tell everybody what they need to be doing and eating with a fork and fitting a kit that only fits for people that's like a size six or smaller. We, we do it a lot. We do it a lot. And, and it's a shame because it, it absolves people from yeah. truly connecting and it's performative, right? When you say yeah. it's, it's performative. Yep. I agree. I agree. So, you know, for folks who are thinking that there is perhaps an overreaction around the burrito, the non-messy burrito, we encourage right, you to right. more, more critically because I think sometimes these um, little things or the things that are perceived as little are mm-hmm. actually a gateway to a deeper understanding about the ways in which uh, whiteness mm maleness, um, kind of that saviorism operates. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think what's what's interesting is, and I, we didn't get too far into it, but just something I want to lift up here around processes, right? You know, just thinking from a macro level around processes, who's involved and who's not, and that therefore determining what the end product is. And, We've seen that a lot in a, you know, a bunch of stories when it comes to retail and so forth, where, for example, Lisa, I think we've talked about this before, where um, it was a, I can't remember what retail company it was, but they ended up using something that used blackface in it, for example. And the very first thing that most of the people that I know who are people of color said, who told them they could do that? Who approved that? Who didn't approve that? Why didn't they run that past the person of color? We're questioning processes now by saying, 
the end result of what you're producing tells us quite clearly who was and who was not part of the process. We say it about diversity statements. We say it about everything, clothing. We, we say it about everything. So, you know, even if you uh, build bikes, for example, did you consult with multiple different body types before you consult? Or is this only going to fit a certain type a certain body type and so forth. And if it only fits a certain body type, then you haven't involved certain people in the process, which is a shame. And then it means that your process, which you put a lot of time, energy, probably money into, now excludes an entire group of people that probably would expand your market and it's the right thing to do. So, you know, I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, we don't consider process. What's baked into the process determines what you get out of the process. You know, if yeah, I don't put yeah. chocolate in the cake, then it's not going to be a chocolate cake. If I don't put a certain ingredient into the process, then it's definitely not going to come out of the process. So I, I think we just need it. the burrito seems small, but it leads to a bigger conversation about processes and who's, who's included. So we've got kind of a good food theme there with your chocolate cake and the ingredients. And I actually really like the way you frame that, that this is a process. Um, and if you don't have the right ingredients in the process, then your end result, then your product, mm-hmm. your, you know, experience, cake, whatever, isn't going to be fully um, representative, fully useful. It isn't going to be successful ultimately, or it's going right. to perpetuate systems of exclusion that, you know, have been around for eons. That's um, right. That's right. Exactly. So exactly. you have to have the right ingredients. So that's a really good way to think about it. The other thing I would say, Shauna, is one of the things I struggle with a little bit is, you know, if you're in the endurance sport community and you want to create a program or a product that is more inclusive, but perhaps you're not connected to um, a large group of folks who would best benefit from the program or the product, you know, and you know a couple of folks of color, a couple of women or, you know, mm-hmm. abilities you know, how do you avoid um, tokenizing that individual uh, through asking for their opinion? Because of course they can't speak for the whole community. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Lisa, I've I've had this happen before um, in a role that I was in where, you know, we, unfortunately, we only had one LGBT coordinator that handled the majority of that work and tons of different DEI committees and task forces and, and so forth, projects, special projects, et cetera. And it just wasn't logistically smart or possible for one human being to sit on 20 plus committees, task force projects, et cetera. And so as a supervisor, as an administrator, as someone who was kind of the strategist, I had to think about you know, okay, layering type of thing. Let's let's layer it. There's different levels of involvement. It, it may be something that's extremely high priority where that person needs to be involved on every step of the process, right? So for example, that person was right. involved in all of the HR stuff that was specifically tailored to LGBT populations. Absolutely. That person needs to be involved from start to finish. And then there were other things where they kind of popped in and out where, you know, requested their presence as needed because we may get to a point where we need someone to review the work that we've done and go back. 
And then there was a point in time where this person solely reviewed things as a last reviewer, whether it's a review of a document or review of some paperwork, or um, even if it's a, a very small case by case basis. And so we got to kind of layer the level of involvement. So the person who represented the, the interest of the community wasn't overwhelmed, wasn't overtaxed, wasn't tokenized as the only voice. And that person got to kind of send surrogates as well along the way when it comes to, I can't be there, but here's another LGBT rep from another group or um, a graduate student or someone else. And so that helped me a bit because you're right. It's, it's a double-edged sword. You want them involved, but you don't want to overtax them in, um, excuse me, in ways that um, kind of make it seem as if the community is a monolith and also just, you know, getting back into what we've talked about a thousand times when it comes to that invisible labor piece where you're expecting people to do more work than what's in their area, um, which yeah. is a shame. Yeah. And I also, um, you know, we've talked before about how with diversity committees and other diversity initiatives inside and outside of endurance sport that the same people are being tacked, right? And that can yes, yes. really, really tiring. So it's this kind of fine line between being inclusive mm. and making sure that you have, you know, the right voices as you develop the product or program, but also not overtaxing um that's right. Who might be from those communities? Because we also know that endurance sport is still a predominantly white um, environment. Mm-hmm. Both that you know, the athlete, mm-hmm. coach, race director, and in industry level. So inevitably, that um, tension I think is going to appear for people. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would, I guess, I would kind of throw in my last little thought around that is again, don't call on people when you need them build relationships throughout. I mean, all the time, it's, it's kind of like, um, we've talked about this before where, you know, the, the, the white politician only comes into the black community when it's election season, right? Like that's what it feels like um, when it comes to this work. Well, it won't feel like tokenizing when it comes to that pro that process or product or program that is, catered to the Latinx community because you already have a relationship with that Latinx tri-club, for example. And so given that, it's natural to reach out to them, for example. So, you know, that's some of the stuff that has to be going on all the time. So, you know, in in essence, you're creating kind of an advisory group, an advisory committee, inroads and, and sincere, not performative, relationships that can be tapped into throughout um, I, I think that's a way to go as well. So you don't look like the um, <laughs> the ill-informed politician rolling in at election season. Yeah, that's a, a great way to end this discussion um, <clears throat> because I you don't, no one wants to be the ill-informed politician, right? <laughs> um, exactly. All right, so let's move on to our hell yeah and our hell no nah segment for this week. Hell yeah. Hell no. Nah. All right, Shauna, what do you got? Oh, so let me just uh, tell you really quickly. And and you called it, Lisa. You called it. So uh, Lisa and I both were, uh, you know, awestruck with everything that happened in regards to um, the unfortunate shooting in Buffalo amongst a predominantly African-American community in a Topps grocery store. Uh, And... 
And before I could even finish reading um, an article about the actual shooting, Dr. Ingerfield called it from day one and said, I sure hope that no one calls mental health when it comes to the shooter and uses that as a form of, um, how can I say, as, a, as an out for the responsibility of taking Black people's lives, right? Dr. Ingerfield called it, and yes, she hit the nail on the head. The shooter's family is using mental health as a reason for his behavior. And the family talks specifically about paranoia and being claustrophobic and some other issues around being in uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And that is a major problem. Um, the first thing that I think about not being a, a mental health um professional is that I am not okay with minimizing the diagnosed mental health concerns of others who share some of those very same diagnoses, paranoia, bipolar, a number of different um, diagnoses. I'm not okay with someone who took black lives being lumped in to those that have specific mental health needs. That's my first thing. And the second thing is I'm sick of the lack of accountability, flat out. I'm right. sick of it. Yep. it. It feels as if, oh, if we go ahead and claim a mental health challenge, then this person either won't be accountable at all or to a lesser degree. I'm not okay with that because that seems to be one of the first things that comes up when it comes to white men, specifically because we know based on the data, Dr. Ingerfield, you correct me if I'm wrong, based on the data, most of the mass shootings have been occurring by whom? white men. So given that I'm not okay with bringing mental health in as a scapegoat for racism, because then that inches us closer to naming white supremacy and racism as um, just pathologizing it as if it's mental health and therefore no one ever has to be accountable for it. I ain't cool with it. So hell no, I am not cool with it. Not cool with the family claiming mental health when there are plenty of other issues and your family member needs to be held accountable flat out. Yep. I'm definitely with you on that. Um, I think there's a lot, (laughs) a lot there, um, but hopefully that will spur some people to go do some additional research around this because it's a really big deal. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. So my hell yeah for this week is going to be about the U S women's national soccer team. So as many of our listeners know, they filed a discrimination lawsuit some time ago And uh, last week, end of May, they reached an agreement with the U.S. Soccer Federation. And so the agreement includes that the men and women's national soccer team will be played equally, paid equally, sorry, um, because they don't play equally because the women's team is like significantly better. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And it actually doesn't stop at equal pay because what they're also going to do is all of the revenue that comes through sponsorship, partners, broadcasting, that is going to get split 50-50 and so and divided equally across the women's team and the men's team. And there's a bunch of other areas too, um, according to news reports related to childcare, parental leave, short-term disability, travel, et cetera. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, and the hope is that this will set the global standard. And it sounds like the U.S. Soccer Federation is the first federation in the world to equalize FIFA World Cup prize money. So, you know, 
for a country that really, really struggles with wage discrimination and effective and appropriate parental leave and maternity leave and childcare and all of that good stuff, the fact that we are the first in the world to do this is quite out of step with everything else, but definitely a good thing. Oh, that is awesome. And look, let me just say, you know, I think that is such an amazing kind of full circle moment, given that we're going into the anniversary of Title IX. I'm just, I'm thrilled. I'm so thrilled about this. And you know what I think too is, <laughs> look, it sets the bar in a place. I'm not going to say hi, because this could have easily been rectified. Hello. Um, but it sets a bar for other federations to follow suit. And so everyone can look yep. and say, okay, what y'all going to do? Okay. We, we got a president. We have a precedent around this. What are you all going to do next? That makes sure that this is consistent across various sports. So thank you for doing the right thing. I, um, I, I think it's going to set the tone for other sports. And so you know, Lisa and I will be watching. We will be watching. I don't care if it's, it could be curling. It could be chess. It could, we don't care what sport it is. We're going to be watching now because, you know, it's been an easy decision. And this is one of those times, Lisa, where I, I share with you the, the urgency. No, it really could happen right now. We don't have to be patient on everything. This could have happened a long time ago. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and use the code FEISTY for 20% off. That's insidetracker.com forward slash FEISTY. Raise your hand if you believe we need more women at our triathlons. The team at Lifetime is right there with you. Their main focus? the iconic Verizon New York City Triathlon coming up on July 24th. And Lisa, I did this race in 2016. And I have to say, it was like being shot out of a cannon with a thousand of your closest friends at the start of the swim. But I hear, unlike 2016, this year, they added a duathlon distance and implemented a rookie refund program, all to get more racers like you of every age, skill level, and background to race the greatest city in the world. So let's ride a better future for endurance sports together. Visit nyctry.com today and reserve your spot. That's nyctri.com today. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. 
edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>